Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, it's great to be here, and thank you for being part of the service uh, this morning. And for those of you who are um, watching and listening uh, by video, uh, thank you for being part of uh, the service this morning. And I trust that the things that we say uh, from the scriptures will be helpful uh, to all of us in our spiritual journey and our walk with Christ. I just wanted to say uh, to Chris, um, that comment about uh, proclaiming through communion uh, is riveting. Um, that's, it's, it's something that I've thought about uh, a lot, uh, what it is to actually proclaim the gospel. And as, as Chris said, uh, it mostly has to do with speaking. But here we are as a community of faith, as a church, and as we participated in that communion, as we, in the bread and the cup, we actually were announcing, we were actually proclaiming, we were actually shouting uh, to the world that uh, Christ has died for our sins and that we proclaim this until he comes, which means that he was resurrected, ascended, and we look forward to his uh, imminent return. So I really appreciated uh, what Chris had to say about that. I thought that was very, very thoughtful and helpful. Uh, I'd ask you to be in prayer for Heritage College and Seminary. Um, we are uh, opening, we are having classes live, um, and we are trying to work hard at the protocols that need to be uh, put in place to make sure that students are safe and faculty and staff. And um, so there's a lot of decisions that need to be made, and it's a dynamic situation, as you know. Uh, things keep changing, and the realities keep changing. And so we need to um, be in prayer for our president, be in prayer for our, our uh, president's cabinet. Uh, they have some really big decisions to make and are ongoing. We have, we've got set uh, plans in place uh, at this point, but uh, we need to uh, be constantly aware of the realities that are surrounding us in these days. But it's, I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to be back in the classroom. While I am retired, I am continuing to teach one course a semester as an adjunct prof. They can't get rid of me quite that easily. And, um, and it's something that, uh, of course, you've, when you've been doing it for this number of years, it's hard to give it up. And evidently, they like me, so they keep inviting me back. Um, another thing that, about the school that, just, just to let you know, we are... We're experiencing some, some really good blessing from God. Uh, about 10 years ago, um, we were about, it, the college has been solid. It's been steady and solid and just kept its, kept its enrollments. We're down a little bit this, this year because of our lack of ability to do recruiting, but, but it's been solid and steady. But our seminary has grown, our graduate level, the master's students. And we've, over the last number of years, have doubled in size. And we're running up against about 200 students in our seminary these days. And um, it's creating a problem for us in that we don't have space on campus uh, for classrooms and, and that kind of thing and faculty. So we are engaged in a capital project to build a new building for the seminary. And um, I'm chair of the, the campaign. I'm not in charge of the campaign, but I'm chair of the committee that's in charge. And it's exciting for me. As I say, I've been part of this thing for over 40 years and teaching primarily at the seminary level and to see this thing grow the way that it has is just uh, exciting for me. Um, so our campaign's about a, a $14 million. That's a lot of money. But the 
cool thing is, is we have about 11 and a half of that already committed. So as chair of the campaign committee, uh, my job is a little bit easier than raising 14 million. I only have to raise about a million and a half. And so if you'd like to talk to me and you've got a check in your pocket for a million bucks, I, I'd really appreciate talking to you after the service. That would be great. And for those of you who are on video, you can call me. I'd be happy to chat with you. I just wanted to let you know that this, and this is not asking for money, this is just saying God is doing some really cool things at Heritage. And I am so glad that I've been part of it for the last over 40 years and continue to have a connection with the school and in particular the seminary and to see what God is doing there. A number of years ago, some uh, friends of mine, we were a group of us were kind of, I, I think we're having coffee or having lunch, I can't remember, and among us was a, a statesman, uh, a man that had really been uh, kind of a mentor to all of us. And in the conversation, he asked this question, what is God's summum bonum? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a question you get asked every day of the week. And um, uh, it, it, it prompted a conversation, it prompted a, a discussion. And the interesting thing about that is he never asked, he never answered the question. He kind of left us all dangling. Um, and uh, kind of a, it was kind of his sense of humor to kind of leave us uh, out there a little bit. And I, and I remember thinking I had to do a little work. And okay, summum bonum, what does that mean? What is that? Well, it's Latin, and I do a little research. You probably already know what it means, but I had to do a little research. Summum means great or ultimate, and bonum means good. What is God's ultimate good? What is God's ultimate sense of what is good and valuable and important? Now, we talk about ultimates in a number of different ways. We talk about ultimates in sports, uh, the World Series, the World Cup, the Super Bowl, the Tour de France, the Stanley Cup, Wimbledon. These are ultimates, right, in sports. We talk about ultimate in art. Maybe the Mona Lisa is, uh, is the ultimate in art. Maybe in music, Beethoven's Fifth. Beethoven's Fifth. Maybe, maybe that's the ultimate in music. Uh, maybe, uh, what about ultimates in world leaders? Ultimates in world leaders. Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that one. I'm just going to leave that one. And, and I remember my kids when they were growing up, they, uh, they played this game called Ultimate Frisbee. Ultimate Frisbee. What, what on earth? Right? Fascinating. But the question is, what is God's ultimate good? But the more important question is, in many ways, is what are the implications that that has for us? As image bearers of that God and claim claimants to be the disciples of the second person of the triune God, namely Jesus Christ. So if we can talk about God's summum bonum, what are the implications for you and me? If that's Him, and we are His image bearers, is that saying something to us? And the answer is, of course, yes. Now, as I talk to you this morning, I'm going to end with four questions. And the first question is, 
what is the God that we have encountered through this text that we're going to look at in Jeremiah 9? What is this God that we have encountered through Christ? The second question is, what is the gospel here? What is the good news? What is it the good news that we can share for ourselves and share to the world? The third question is, what is the worldview shift I need to make? What, what is, how now do I think about myself as a, as a citizen of the world we live in, for sure, but as citizens of God's kingdom? And is there a shift? Do I need to think differently than maybe the way I would normally think about things? in light of the fact that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And then the fourth question is, what is my personal response? And that question, I can't answer for you. That's where we trust the Holy Spirit and the power of the word to penetrate our hearts. I know how I need to answer the question, but for you, that may be a very different way of answering this question. And I'm asking all of us, to think deeply and seriously and allow the Spirit to speak to us about how I need, how each of us need, you and me, to respond to all of this. So the question, sumum bonum, what does it mean? It means ultimate good. What is God's ultimate good? But what now is the answer to that question? What, what does that look like? Well, um, the answer... Um, as I said, he kind of left us dangling uh, that, in that conversation. And, but a, a number of, a number of um, I think weeks, even months later, I got a letter from my friend. And this is back in the day when we actually wrote letters to each other. And he signed it with his name. But underneath it, he wrote a scripture verse. And the scripture verse was Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And I remember going to that verse, those verses, and reading them and realize, aha, this is the answer to his question. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, for him, and I actually think for all of us, and by the way, it's become my signature verse as well when I use one, the ultimate good that God expects of himself and of us. So, if you've got a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 9. We've already read the text. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom, the strong, the rich boast. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, and that I am committed to three things, kindness, justice, and righteousness, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Now, we need to understand a little bit of the context here. Jeremiah is in a context that is hostile to him. He's called the weeping prophet, and he is surrounded by a group of prophets that are called, we often call them the pseudo-prophets or the false prophets, and they were saying to the people of God, you have nothing to worry about, everything's going to be okay, you are the people of God, you are the elect, you are the chosen, you are the favored, nothing is ever going to happen to you. But the difficulty was that they had abandoned their God. They, had worship, they were worshiping other gods. They had fallen into idolatry and immorality. And 
you could almost hear the hooves of the Babylonian horses as they were coming from the north, ready to take them into exile. And Jeremiah is saying, watch out, it doesn't have to be this way. You can prevent this, you can delay it, it doesn't have to be you, repent. But listen to what he says. And now, O women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the, words, to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows. What a horrible picture. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares say, this is what the Lord declares, the dead bodies of men and women will lie like refuse on an open field, like cut grain before the reaper, with no one to gather them. They had fallen into a world and a worldview that had, had apostatized. And exile loomed. And at that point he said, so, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise, the strong, the rich boast of these things. Because they had fallen into that world. Into a world and a culture and a worldview that had gone completely haywire away from the covenantal grace of God. And now these things had become their summum bonum. They had become their ultimate good, their ultimate value, their ultimate passion, their ultimate mission in the world. And exile loomed. So what we find in this text in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 is we find two statements of ultimates. Two summum bonums. Not sure how you say that in Latin. Summum boni. However you say that. The first was an ultimate that leads to death. Death has climbed into the window. The second was an ultimate that leads to life in, in an intimacy with God. One writer captured it and said it in these words. We have two triads. A triad of life and a triad of death. So, he starts with this triad of death. Verse 23. Let not the wise, let not the strong, let not the rich boast in the things that they consider to be valuable. So, to boast in glory or glory in wisdom, let not the wise glory or boast in their wisdom. Please understand, wisdom was important in ancient Israel. There are wisdom books in the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Jesus was a sage. He, was a, he, spoke, he spoke in parables. That's, that's a stock and trade of, uh, of wisdom. But to make this kind of thing, knowledge, education, intellect, academic degrees, whatever, this kind of superior sense or, of intellect or wisdom, to make these our glory, to make these our ultimate, to make these things our identity, our boast, our sense of value, whether individually or communally as a church, death has climbed into the window. Exile looms. And then, to boast in glory or glory in strength or power, whether we're talking about physical strength, athletic strength, fitness and health, 
whether we're talking about that or whether we're talking about power, power and in, in, in political power or, or power of position or church leadership power or, or power in our families or relationships or our vocations or employment. And we're not talking about abusive power. We're just talking about power. When these things become our ultimate, when they become our glory, when they become our identity, when they become our passion, when they become our sense of mission in the world, when they become our value, our boast, death has climbed into the window. And then riches, to glory in wealth and riches. Ah, I don't know you, but I often envy the wealthy. I find myself wishing for more. I'll, I'll never forget my, a neighbor of mine, a number of years ago, told me his story. We just kind of met. And uh, he told me his story, and he said, you know, one day I, I walked into a, uh, into a variety store or something like that, and he said, I, I held a, the door open for someone to go in ahead of me, and then we both bought a lottery ticket, and I was $11 million richer. Now, I don't know whether the lesson is whether you should hold doors for people when you go into variety stores. But the point is, he bought a lottery ticket, and he was a wealthy man. And I have to confess, when I heard that story, and he's a neighbor of mine, and by the way, I don't live in a neighborhood where millionaires live. Um... I was a little bit envious. I, I just kind of, wow, lucky guy. But Jesus made it clear you can't have two gods, mammon and God himself. And when we make wealth our summum bonum, death has climbed into the window. And, and, and again, please note that none of these in and of themselves are wrong. Wisdom was a valued thing. Power in leadership was affirmed throughout the scriptures. Wealth was an evidence of God's blessing in the Old Testament. And according to Koheleth and Ecclesiastes, he says that if God has given any person a little bit of wealth, to enjoy them, this is a gift of God. But when they become our ultimates, our passion, our legitimacy, our identity, our boast, our glory, our trust, we have embraced a triad of death, uh, triad of death, and death has climbed into the window. And by the way, when the church embraces these kinds of things, exile looms, and our voice has been silenced, and the gospel message of Jesus Christ has been lost. But Jeremiah doesn't stop there. He's given us a summum bonum of the kingdom of the world, in fact. You look around us, that's exactly what the world lives for. But he now tells us what the kingdom of God is all about. But, and with a strong contrast, he says, but on the other hand, let him who boasts, let the one who boasts, him or her, her boasts about this, let, let them boast about this, that they understand and know me that I am the Lord. In other words, he's saying the summum bonum, the ultimate good that we can chase after is intimacy with God. An intimate knowledge and understanding of God. 
And he's talking about a passion of God that orders our lives around his values, his, his, his values, his morality, his ethics, his purposes, his mission in the world. It is an intimacy with God that says about every nanosecond of our lives, God is Lord. And I don't know about you, but when I think about intimacy with God, I, f- I find myself moving into the world of mysticism uh, and that mystical relationship with God that, you know, it, 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 intimacy with God captured in my prayer life, intimacy with God in my devotional reading of Scripture, intimacy with God in, in, in times of silence and solitude, which I enjoy. But it's interesting because In this particular text, he takes us one step further, and he doesn't just leave it as some kind of mystical relationship with God. He actually says, this is what it looks like in real hard, feet-on-the-ground ways. And that's where he introduces the triad of life. So the question that I have is, what does intimacy with God look like look like and he answers it for us in three words love justice and righteousness in the Hebrew text some of you may know these words chesed mishpat and tzedakah these three words dominate the prophets they dominate everything that the prophets had to say about how to live faithfully as God's covenant people. These are probably, in many ways, the most powerful three words in all of the Old Testament, if not the New. Three key words to help us understand and know God. And the first one is this. This word, kindness, in our our NIVs. It could be translated kindness, love. Um, It could be translated mercy, grace, loyalty, unconditional love. The the closest word I can come up with to help us understand this word, this word hesed in the Old Testament, is the Greek word agape. And it has everything to do with, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It has everything to do with Jesus' action in a basin and a towel. It has everything to do that is captured in the two great commandments to love God and love each other. It has everything to do with what husbands are told uh, how to relate to their wives and how wives are to relate to their husbands through agape, through hesed. It's, it's the love that God has for his people. And my favorite illustration of, of this word hesed or agape in the New Testament, in the Old Testament hesed, is this, this notion of love is Hosea, where Hosea is told by God to go to the brothel, find his wife Gomer, who had become a prostitute in the brothel, rescue her and bring her home and make her his wife again. That's what we're talking about. Covenantal love, grace, mercy, love, agape, unconditional love. And this is the first key notion of what it is to understand and know God in real, feet-on-the-ground kinds of ways. And it's a call for you and me. It's a call for the church, evidence in Christ himself, being sent by God as the one to demonstrate chesed, agape, to come and rescue us, destined to an eternity apart from him. The second word is this word justice. Now, often when we think about justice and we say, I want justice, we're thinking about vengeance. 
But please understand, in the Old Testament, justice, this word mishpat, justice meant care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And if you miss that, you miss the meaning of the word. It had everything to do with making sure that the voiceless, the marginalized, that the powerless are given their due. And it means that you and I as individuals or the church, if we are going to understand what intimacy with God is all about, it means that we have to care for the voiceless. We have to care for the poor. We have to care for the marginalized. That's what it is to be intimate with God. Now, next week, I'm going to go to Amos 5. I'm going to develop this word even further where Amos said, let justice, mishpat, roll down like a mighty river. And today is the anniversary of when Martin Luther King actually gave that speech. So, we are in Canada right now. And we are in a place where if we're not conscious of what's going on in our country when it comes to marginalized people at multiple levels, we are failing as the church and as God's image bearers. And then the third word is righteousness. It means moral and ethical purity. It means no shadow of darkness, whether at school, high school, college, university, in our homes, at work, in our relationship inside and outside our families, in our finances, on our computers, on our phones, engagement with social media, no shadow of darkness. And we know that has tremendous implications. And I find it fascinating. The question says, well, well, well you're, you're talking out of the Old Testament. How does this relate to the new? How does this relate to the church? This is Old Testament prophetic stuff. Listen to the Apostle James. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after the orphans and widows and their distress, justice, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, righteousness. James had read the prophets, and now Jeremiah is speaking to the church. So what does all, what does all this mean? And I said I was going to end with these four questions. So here we go. First question. What is our encounter with God through Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, I understand that God is a knowable God. He wants to be known, that He understands and knows me. He's not distant. He wants to be known. I learned that there are three things that help me come into intimacy with God. And those three things are feet on the ground kind of things, love, justice, and righteousness. The third thing I realize is that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the embodiment of all of that. That this is what he lived out. He lived out love. He lived out justice. He lived out righteousness. And as we embrace Jesus of Nazareth, we in fact embrace these values. And in Christ, we become intimate with God and we engage in his summum bonum. What's the good news here? What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is, is simply this. <laughs> the Christian faith is all about love. The Christian faith is all about care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. 
The Christian faith is all about moral and ethical righteousness. And this is the message that we proclaim to the world, that in Jesus Christ, all this can be found. And I would suggest that every thinking person wants these values in some way, shape, or form. That, that anything of any faith or any religion wants to embrace these values because these are the values that are of health and dignity and, and care. And the good news is, it's found in Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the kind of faith that you and I proclaim through a little sip of juice and a little wafer cracker, even as Chris talked about, and we proclaim that every time we take the bread and the cup. This is good news. And the, the other good news about intimacy with God doesn't have to be hard. It isn't necessarily just this mystical thing. It actually is feet on the ground stuff that we can actually live out day by day. What is the worldview shift here? Well, wow. Two triads, right? Triad of death, triad of life. Death has climbed into the window. Life, intimacy with God. And I don't know about you, but I find myself caught up in a worldview that often embraces the former. I find myself caught up with a worldview where intellect and education becomes my identity. Where wealth becomes my envy. Where strength and power and leadership become kind of an aspiration. Even as I've engaged in leadership in the context I've been in and over the years, even as I have engaged and been part of, a, of an academic world where I've been able to engage in intellectual thought, I find myself finding my identity in those realities, and I find myself engaging in death. And I find myself having to shift and say, think about this. What is it to have intimacy with God? Yes, I have my prayer time. Yes, I have my, my scripture time. Yes, I have my silence and solitude. But are you engaged in love? Agape love. Are you engaged in care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow? Are you engaged in ethical and moral righteousness that is beyond a shadow of turning? And so there's a worldview here, and I shift here, and, and I'm challenging myself as well as challenging each of you who are, who are listening and watching this morning. And it's important. What's our personal response? You know what? I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what that means for you. I thought about this many, many times. I've been in this text many times. As it was, the signature verse of my friend has become my signature verse. And I simply say, let's allow the Holy Spirit to invade each of our lives and do his work of encouraging and convicting to help us all grow into the image of God through his summum bonum. God bless you all.